Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce our storyteller for the day, uh, Steve Andrews. How many of you know Steve Andrews? He's not famous around here. Uh, but out there in the real world, he's not famous either. He's incredibly talented, and you're going to see he's got the looks. But really, that's not my favorite thing about him. Uh, he really has a tremendous depth of insight about life. And, um, you know, I love him because he's, he's like a um, fellow tortured soul. And I go to him with my tortured thoughts, and he goes there with me. I love that about Steve. And uh, the thing I love about him is he's so friendly. He agrees with me initially. He'll say like, oh, yeah, totally, and then completely contradict me. And I don't even know what's happened. So I love that about him. Steve, come on up and tell us a story. All right. We'll see if technology's on my side here. It's true. We're both in our 40s now, so it doesn't listen to us anymore. Is there a 12-year-old in the room? There we go. All right, it's gonna to be totally, totally worth it. All right, all right, we're up, we're good. Okay, uh, so I wanted to do story time a little bit differently today, and sorry for the technical difficulties, uh, because I wanted to do more of, uh, this is going to be a series of snapshots rather than a linear narrative. So, but by the end of it, you're gonna have a pretty good idea about who I am and what I'm about, but hopefully it'll be fun this way. So this is me when I'm three years old. And a couple things to note here are A, the hair. It's page boy, but I miss it. And uh, hair is not to be overrated, not to be overlooked. Uh, and you might also notice I'm wearing lederhosen. My mother was very German, fiercely nationalistic. And she not only dressed as weird, but she had a lot of other strange rules. So like television, um, all my friends got to watch a lot of it. Not so much in the Andrews house. Uh, it was pretty much banned, and uh, my mother didn't love American culture, so I used to have to sneak over to my friend John Glassburn's house across the street to watch TV. So this was my favorite television show growing up. I used to love to watch Bewitched, uh, and Darren Stevens, I thought, had the coolest job on the planet. He and Mr. Tate would uh, sit around coming up with funny ideas all day, and they would pitch them to clients, and I really thought that these, these were the original Mad Men, by the way, and wouldn't it be cool to have a job like theirs one day? Then in 1983, something uh, pivotal happened to me. I was watching the Super Bowl at John Glassburn's house uh, because my mother thought it was too violent and she wouldn't have it in our home. Uh, and they were having a party and there were tons of people there, right? And at halftime, an ad came on and everyone stopped what they were doing and glued their attention the TV, and we've all seen this one, but I looked at and I saw these images of this dystopian future where people were enslaved by this evil overlord on a huge screen, and there's a cut to this woman, and she's wearing brightly colored clothes, and she's running, at this, running towards camera, and she's carrying a sledgehammer. It's very dramatic, uh, and she's being chased by these guards, and just before they catch her, she runs up to the screen, she heaves this hammer, shatters the screen, and just wakes everybody up out of their trance. It was Apple's original Macintosh commercial. And I looked around the living room at John Glassburn's house and everyone's jaw was open. No one had ever seen anything like this. There was this almost collective wow. And I said to myself, that's it. That's what I'm going to do for a living. So years later, after graduating college, I attended a fancy design school where I built a portfolio of ads and I hung out with a lot of people who wore expensive, thick-rimmed glasses. Then I uh, got a job at BBDO in Atlanta, and where I still hung out with people who wore expensive thick-rimmed glasses, except now I was getting paid for it, so that was a little bit better. Uh, I quickly found out that advertising people like to give each other lots of awards. They love, love, love to get dressed up, sit in rooms like this, and tell each other how brilliant they are, and give each other shiny objects. <laughs> I chased after awards like the rest of my peers, and I won my fair share, but a few years 
uh, later the shine started to wear off, I got to pondering about this calling of mine. I started to wondering about things like meaning and purpose. What was I doing with my life? Was I really helping the world? Was I hurting it? Was I playing for the good guys or the bad? I wasn't sure. Then to make matters worse, I read this study. In it, people were asked to rate honesty in different fields, and advertising was shockingly near the bottom, right down there just above politicians and used car salesmen. That's where I was. It's pretty great. It bummed me out. The thing is, I couldn't really blame people for feeling that way. I started to realize that I had become a professional emotional manipulator. Someone paid to pull the right level, levers with people to get them to buy stuff they didn't need so that they could impress people that they didn't even really like. My job put me in a position to play on the insecurities, hopes and fears and dreams of people that I didn't even know, and I worried that if I did this long enough, I might become someone who I didn't want to be. Because all of our careers shape us, whether we like it or not. If you're a farmer, you get a hunched back or you get your arm torn up at a combine, it just comes with the territory, but what about advertising? How was it shaping me? <laughs> yeah, I became cynical. I found that people who deal in the emotional every day are hyper, hypersensitive to being manipulated. There's nowhere I can go without seeing a marketing conspiracy. If I go shopping for clothes, uh, I hear the music and I'm like, what's that about? Uh, why are they doing that? They're trying to get me to feel more attractive so I'll buy more stuff. I even go to church and I wonder, why the wood background, why the neon? And it's probably to appeal to a younger, more urban audience, right? I can't turn it off. <laughs> there is always a worm in the apple for me and I am looking for it. So the obvious question is, what does a cynical doubter like me do when it comes to faith? Thankfully, there's a blueprint for it. In all my life, I've never heard anyone say anything positive about the Apostle Thomas. Like, he's always referred to as the doubter, you know? Like, like there's always a hint of disgust in it, like he was some kind of a jerk. But to me, he's a hero. I mean, just picture it. His friend and mentor has just been tortured to death, and all of a sudden there are stories about him walking around. It sounds too good to be true. And Thomas says, yeah, right, I won't believe it until I see it for myself. When Jesus shows up, Thomas believes, and Jesus says something that I think is pretty interesting. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen and yet ha who have not seen, yet have still believed. And I think this is great news. He didn't say, hey, Thomas, pack your stuff and get out. Jesus didn't kick Thomas out of the club. I believe that's because Jesus understood skepticism and didn't fear it the way many of us do today. I like to think about our ancestors, right? So the optimists would look at a forest like this and say, you know, there probably aren't any bears in there. Let's go for a hike, guys. Uh, but those guys probably got eaten a lot more than the skeptics <laughs> who looked at it and said, you know, there might just be a bear in those woods. Jesus obviously had room in his heart for skeptics like Thomas and me, for people who struggle with belief. We may not be part of his all-star team, but we might be a necessary part of his body of believers, just like white blood cells protect us physically. A few questioning souls here and there might not be such a bad thing for church. Because there are plenty of folks out there coming in the name of God whose motives we should doubt. There are people we should question and not take at their word. And in a world where it's hard to tell fact from fiction and, tell, and everyone is trying to sell you something, it's good to have a few Thomases around, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's good to have some people that say, hey guys, let's pump the brakes a little. Let's take a closer look at this. And I think Jesus saw the value in this. His acceptance is something I'm very grateful for and it's brought me a lot of peace. And if you're a doubter like me, just hang in there. There's hope for you if you look for it. Our reading for today is from John 13. Uh, please follow along if you have a Bible. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that our, his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. That was great. Uh, so Julie Steele, our fearless pastor, executive pastor, is not here. She's out in L.A. seeing her sec second favorite son. And um, <laughs> if I was in L.A., I'd say she was with his, her first favorite. So in honor of Julie, I'm wearing a jersey today because the Seahawks are playing. But they're also playing the Giants. And since she's not here, we're just going to... I'm just kidding. <laughs> As we get started here, I want to start by just um, thanking you all for coming. I've been thinking about this more, just what it takes to come to church. And I think it's kind of a scary thing. If you're new, studies show that you have super high, super heightened anxiety about coming to church. You're not oriented yet, so you don't know where to park, and you don't even know where the entrance to the parking lot is. You don't know where the front door is. You don't know how people will be. You don't know how to interpret the facial expressions. You're stepping into the middle of a movie that everybody else wrote and directed and acted in, you know, and you're just this total outsider. And so I really appreciate new people for coming to church. Uh, it takes courage. I appreciate those of you who are going through things today, it's hard to show up and interact with people. You don't know how to, what to do with your struggle or your pain or where you're at. And so maybe you have to put on a brave face or a smiling face. Thank you for doing that today. Thank you to all of you who also serve. We have cupcakes out there. We have the Free Wheelchair Mission Gang. We have Elise and her cohort uh, running the ministries of the church. Uh, I see faces of behind-the-scenes groups here. Uh, thank you all for being a part of this body. We had a great membership class last week. Uh, as Julie and I and the rest of the staff were musing about it, uh, we, de we decided that it was probably our, uh, our best membership class in the last five years. It was, we felt relaxed and we felt a better sense of who we are and who we're not. And it really felt like we could begin to strengthen the core of this church, to grow it uh, bigger and to grow it deeper and to grow it stronger. And so uh, I want to invite the rest of you to consider for you what it would be like to belong to a body, you know, for uh, people to know who you are. C.S. Lewis said that home is a place that remembers you, for this to be your home. Family is also resilient, you know, the difference between strong and resilient. They say that the pyramids are strong, but most of them are gone because they're not resilient. A forest is not strong, but it's resilient. So even though there are wildfires, it's going to come back. That's just the way resilience works. And a family is not necessarily strong, but it's resilient. And so we get to do life together and go through some tough times, work through conflict and awkward situations. And over time, we become a strong healthy, missional church here, letting God's light shine. So I'm going to just keep talking like this every week uh, until we really are functioning uh, in the capacity that God has for us. We are uh, in the midst of a series today in the book of John. We're calling the Son of God. And the title of today's sermon is, I Love You. When is the last time you said these three little words, I love you to anyone else? Last night? I want to give you a chance. Turn to somebody in the room. <laughs> Look them in the eyes and say, I love you. 
It's a bit awkward. It's a bit contrived. You're not sure you mean it because I'm asking you to do it. Three little words. It means a lot, especially if you're in an awkward dating relationship <laughs> for a few months. <laughs> what are you saying when you say the words, I love you? You could emphasize I. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> what do you mean? What are you thinking? How do you think it's landing on the other person? What are they assuming? What expectations are you setting up for the other person when you say, I love you? Because they hear it and they run with it very differently than you meant them to. That's the way I love you works. I thought you were going to make me a sandwich every day. I didn't mean that when I said I love you. I meant I appreciate it when you make me a sandwich. Who knows what I love you means? I uh, used to lead worship. I used to do what Katie does here, but like horribly for the University of Michigan. There are about 150 of us um, uh, in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of Michigan. And I remember one time after a set, a student came up to me and said, I can't sing those words where we tell God we love him because they're not original to me. I didn't write them. So I feel that I'm being insincere. I can't say it. Now, I had a little bit of wisdom beyond my years, beyond what I deserved. And at that moment, I had an insight into how to respond to this person. And I thought to myself, this is classic college idealism. You know, you got to mean everything you say kind of thing. And, uh, but I kept that thought to myself. And I said, you know, what words do you have that other people didn't say to you first? Like, everything is imitation, isn't it? We've all heard things before. We say, I love you, because somebody told us, I love you. That's not original to us, but we can still mean it 100%. But, you know, this person was asking, because uh, this is what M. Scott Peck, the famous psychiatrist, calls the stage of responsibility. You want to own things. You want to differentiate from what other people have shoved down your throat, and you want to say, no, 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 I want to choose things. I want to mean things. I want it to connect to who I am. That's very appropriate for uh, that season in life. But the point I want you to hear uh, in this little story is that somebody has to say it to you. You can't give what you don't have. And this is what Apostle Paul says. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's a, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious to all. Nothing. Everything I've ever heard is the only thing I, I have to regurgitate. I don't create anything. I don't, nothing originates with me. That's the principle of the universe. And so when we say the words, I love you, we don't mean that I'm the author of love. We don't mean that love didn't exist before I came along. We don't mean you've never had love in your life until I came into your life. We mean none of those things. And yet we don't really know what we mean when we say I love you. Where does that love come from? If we love, let alone the words, but the, the energy that is love, the disposition, you know, the thing, this mysterious thing that we experience so powerfully as love. In fact, it's one of the most necessary things in our life. As soon as we have shelter, as soon as we have food in our bellies, the next thing we yearn and crave for is love. Who taught us that? Where does it come from? Because it's not from us. The words are from us, and the concept isn't from us, and the act of it, the, the reality of it, the force of it, is not from you. And that's not what you mean, I don't think. I think a misunderstanding of the I really kind of messes us up, though. You know, we get all serious, like a college student, about what the I means. Like, do I love somebody? Do I have it? You know, we start questioning our own ability and confidence about love. 
I love you. Let's think about this in today's sermon. Two points today. The thing about love and the thing about you. Okay, first, the thing about love, we will start with verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. There's a double meaning here in the word end. That's the Greek word telos. And it's the word that we often translate to mean perfect. We also mean end or the, uh, the finality of something. But really, I think the best translation of this word end is the word complete. There's a fullness to it. It's all that it was meant to be. There's something perfect, just perfect about Telos, this word. And the Bible says Jesus loved those he was supposed to love. He loved them not just sometimes, not just incompletely, but completely, perfectly. He loved them to the end. There's a finality to it. It also means that Jesus is the author of this love, that he's the one who understands it comprehensively. He embodies love. He is love. The, The only way to love to the end, this completely and perfectly, is by being love itself. And that by implication means that all others, like you and I, when we love At our shining best, we imitate love, but we are not love. And we can channel this love. We can be conduits of love. We can act in accordance with love, but we are not love itself. And one of the ways you know this is if I ask you, when you die, will love cease? No. It just keeps going. And then as soon as you think about it from that perspective, you begin to understand that there's a stream that's flowing, that's been flowing long before you got here. And it will continue to flow long after you are gone. The stream is love. And while you are alive, while you have consciousness and volition and agency, you step into this stream and you partake of it. You get to be conduits of it. You get to be recipients of it. You get to apply it to others. You get to learn about it and grow in it. But you don't author it. You don't create it. You don't create more love. There is a fullness, a completion to what love is in concept and eventually in practice. That's not dependent on your life. It's not dependent on me. Because it's Jesus' love that's complete. And so one simple way I like thinking about this is that love flows down. It's coming from somewhere, and it's flowing down to us, and we get to keep letting it flow. It's a part of it. It adds texture to the love, but it's not love itself. The image that comes to mind, I just went on a hike on Friday on my day off to Snow Lake. It was beautiful. Up there, there was about five, six inches of snow. It snowed the whole time. Um, But one of the things I marveled at is I've never been on a hike where there's so many streams and waterfalls to cross as part of the hike. And I thought about the rocks that are in the way of the water that's falling. I think about the water is like God's love. It flows with or without those rocks that are underneath it. But the rocks add something hard that I can sort of grapple with. If it's just the water, nothing to stand on underneath it, I can't access this love. But it's the rocks that allow me to experience that flow. And that's like all of us. As we are in each other's lives, we get to experience a concrete, tangible expression of 
love, and I would argue that it's God's love, not yours, not mine. But it's not love itself. Love is merely flowing down to us, through us, on us, over us, in us, and then out of us. That's the nature of love. Things like respect and fear and trust, these things rise up. You know, so when we say we love God, it's not actually love the way it is love from God to us. There's a condescending nature to love. What we give to him is respect and fear and trust, and that rises up. That's the way that works. But love flows down. This also means that we will fail at love because it's Christ's love. It's God's love in Christ that is complete to the end. But our love, by implication, means it's not complete. That means it will fail. 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. That's not talking about your love or my love. That's talking about love itself. It never fails because it's complete. There's something whole about it. God owns the market on love. And then verse 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hands, that's the idea of love flowing down, and that he had come forth from God, again, flowing down, and was going back to God, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments. This is the revealing, the intimate side of love. Laid aside his garments and taking a towel. That's the point of contact now. It's the rocks. That's what we can feel. He girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Because love flows down from God, because God is love, there is a condescension. There's a slope to love. And you know this is true. You know, when you begin to love somebody, you feel love, what you're, what's actually happening, I think, is you're beginning to see people as God sees them. You catch a glimpse of their needs, their vulnerabilities, who they are. You begin to see a place for you in their life and how you can have this way of meeting their hopes, wants, needs, and dreams, addressing some of their fears and concerns. You begin to see your place in them, but what you're doing is you're, condes- you're being condescending, not in an insulting way, but in the right way. That's why it's easier to love your children than it is to love your parents. You do way more math when you have to give upwards, but you don't think at all if it's your kids. You just do it. It's a reflex because love flows down. And so when Jesus is doing this foot-washing act, you know, what you're going to read in the commentaries and a lot of people emphasize is this aspect of Jesus being a servant, that this is sort of servant leadership. I don't think that's the main point here. The point of this that I think the author is making is that Jesus, it's not that so much that Jesus is being a servant, but it's that in order for him to love us, He has to meet us where we are at. So if you were to go back to the word sentence, I love you, the emphasis there would be on the you part. I love you. Where are you? Well, you're on the floor. You're covered in dust and poop and you're dirty and you're smelly. That's just us. And if God wants to love us, he has to get down there. It's not so much that he's trying to be a servant, but love has to be a servant in order to love the, reach the object. In order for the subject, Jesus, to complete his task, he has to find us, the object of his love, down there. We look at him, we go, oh my goodness, he's such a servant. It's like, oh my gosh, this is an indictment. I'm down there. The feet that Jesus is washing, that represents us. That's our condition. This is a human plight we're talking about. You shouldn't feel all love. You should feel like it's a reality check. 
It's like somebody put up the mirror after you came back from a year-long trip on the Pacific Crest Trail. And you haven't showered. You haven't brushed your teeth. You haven't combed your hair. You haven't shaved. That applies to both men and women. That's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> Just, you know, women not shaving for a year. Okay, moving on. So read this and know this is where we are at. And for God to love us, there's a condescension, co condescending to Christ. It's God becoming man. And then it's man getting down to where we men and women are actually are, where we dwell. That's us. I don't want to get into the specifics of what it meant, but it was the nastiest thing. It's the lowest of servants that washed people's feet. And so Jesus is doing this. There's a kind of vulnerability and repulsiveness and an absolute neediness about who we are. Now, you may not think so just looking around on a Sunday morning, but if you were to eavesdrop on one of my conversations during the week with many of you, you realize we really are this repulsive and this needy. We really do live in very low places. If you're not a Christian, I want, I want to invite you to think about this. Do you really believe love comes from you? Do you really believe you deserve love? Do you really believe you don't need to be loved? You don't need to be found on the floor? Oh, I think it's absolutely true. The second thing we notice about Jesus' ministry, uh, you know, things, acts like this, is that the Bible tells us Jesus never actually did ministry. He didn't come to earth to be a pastor. It wasn't his vocation to do ministry, to generally have this uh, desire or call to care for people. That wasn't why Jesus walked the earth. The Bible tells us that everything Jesus did were signs or symbols. And the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't speak except when he spoke in parables. So the stories, the words were symbolic. They were signs. And his acts were symbolic. They were signs. And that's why what would Jesus do is a bit of a misnomer of sorts. I mean, I like it in general. But you can't ask the question, what would Jesus do, and then do it, because he wasn't doing what we are supposed to do. In fact, Jesus himself said, you're not going to do what I did. I do the, the Messiah things that you can't do. We can't do these signs. He says, you're going to do greater things, but you're not going to do what I did. And this is an important point, because he was loving us in ways that we are not capable of. When Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, it's Jesus saying, this is what's required of me, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is what I have to do to reach you. You are down there. And how this love translates in who you are and what that looks like in your life, it could look very different than how I walk the earth. Jesus was homeless. Jesus didn't have clothes. He didn't take a spouse. He was poor. This is not necessarily everybody's call. This isn't the model of how we should live. But this is really about Jesus. But isn't that what we do? We read about something in the Bible, and then we immediately just make it about us. We don't know how to appreciate it for what it is. We don't see this and say, this is Jesus being the Messiah to us. We immediately flip it and say, okay, I got to do this now. We make it about us. And that's the next point here, the thing about you. Look at verse 8. Jesus gets down to wash everybody's feet. And this is Peter speaking for all of humanity here. The beauty about Peter here is that he's every man. This is how we are. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Now, where's the emphasis in that sentence? Never shall you wash my feet. I think it's in the word my. 
Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, and the emphasis is there, you have no part with me. Because Peter put the emphasis on himself, Jesus responds by putting the emphasis on him. And Peter, representing human nature, is making the foot washing not about Jesus, but about himself. He's getting self-conscious. And this is basically one of the uh, great tells of humanity, of human nature. We get self-conscious. Isn't this what we saw in the story in the garden? As soon as they sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? What came in the room? Self-consciousness. I'm naked. I'm ashamed. Who am I? Why am I? Can I? Will you? It's all about me, suddenly. And that's what Peter is acting out here, self-consciousness. Jesus, you can't wash my feet. I'm not worthy, Peter is saying. And immediately this idea of worthiness has entered the conversation. Saying, Jesus, I'm not worthy to be touched by you. You're my master. You're my rabbi. I'm merely your disciple. It is I, if anything, it is I who should be washing your feet. How would you... What? No, you can't wash my feet. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. And this is at the center of what self-consciousness is about. It's this sense, this sense that we are not worthy. And this is our lifelong battle. Um, an author that I have read a lot of and I think about regularly is uh, Brene Brown. I just recently learned that she's actually a, a practicing Christian. Some of you have wondered about that with me. Uh, and I did a little digging and I found this interview uh, where she talks about her faith and her Christian practice. And she uh, quoted verses and talked about prayers that she likes to pray. She does, she's not public about that because she wants, doesn't want to limit her audience. But she's famous for this. She says uh, how everyone is worthy of love and belonging. And I want to tell you, I'm going to critique her a little bit here, even though I'm a fan of hers. Worthiness, this idea of worthiness is a good start. But it's only penultimate. And, you know, as a dad, I want my girls to uh, have self-worth. I think it's important. But I also know that self-worth, when it comes down to it, is worthless. Who cares what you think about yourself? You don't even care what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is actually just built on what other people told you they think about you. You know, so if you grew up treated, being treated as somebody who's not worthy of love, you're never going to feel worthy of love, and that's probably going to be your lifelong struggle. And I struggle with that. We all struggle with that sense of worthiness. We are just like Peter. We say, you can't wash my feet. I don't want you to touch my feet. I don't even want you to see my feet. It's about us. And then it's Jesus when he responds to Peter, letting him know it's not about your loveliness. It's not about your feet at all. It's not about you deserving love, about your lovability. It's not about your perfection. It's about the perfection, the completeness of my love. It's about my loving nature. You know, there's this uh, evangelical battle that I fight for the gospel. And the gospel is, it's not about works, but it's about grace. It's about God loving you. It's not about you working so that you earn God's love. Now, there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Work has its place. I love work. And work itself is built on the ground of love and grace. So that's fine. But works fail when it gets attached to worthiness. If you do something, and that's what makes you worthy of love, that's when you're beginning to go down a slippery slope. God loves you because he is loving. 
That's who he is. Have you ever met somebody that's just a great person who's really friendly and smart and famous and they like you anyways? That's not about you at all. That's just about who they are. You know this. You feel out of control in their presence. You get self-conscious. You say things you didn't mean to say. You know, and that's part of it. Peter's self-consciousness is part of the experience of loving, experiencing love for the first time. It just feels so radically different than earning something. And so this comes up. If you have not been loved this way by a God who is love and your whole life has been about you earning love, you feeling worthy in some way based on some value that you bring, it's not going to last. That love will run dry. And that's why later on in the passage, it says that the world will know God if they witness or partake in this kind of gracious, undeserved love. Uh, I want to apply this now. Um, Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you loved one another. The key to loving other people is this little phrase here, as I have loved you. So the number one task of you being able to channel God's love is not to say, God, make me more loving. That'd be the effect. But the direct ask that you have to make is, God, would you love me? Would you allow me to experience your love? Would you wash my feet? And you say, wait, 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 no, no, no. I don't want to do that. I feel like I'm hogging. I want to be an agent of love. So I want to say, God, help me to be loving. That's the exact same sentiment as Peter saying, I don't want you to wash my feet. And then Jesus says, I have to wash you. If I don't wash you, you can't love at all. And then Peter says, then wash my whole body. And Peter, Jesus says, oh, you don't get it at all. That's right, we don't get it at all. And so the first and foremost uh, application is for us to Ask, ask God to love you, to wash your feet, and let the magic happen thereafter. Every morning you wake up and you're worried about your day, you're worried about your life, you, got, you have anxiety and you have fears, you have concerns. You say, God, would you love me today? Would you wash my feet today? Would you make my heart secure so it's not living out of insecurity all day? Would you somehow communicate to me your imminence, your nearness? Would you somehow let me know that you go before me and you're cleaning up after me? Would you somehow buffer conversations and relationships today? Would you be there for me? Would you be my help? Be my God today? Wash my feet today. And you have to ask it shamelessly. That's what Jesus told Peter to do. Unless I wash your feet, you can't do it. You have no part in what I represent, which is love. And so the first thing is for you to be loved. You have to ask for God to love you. If you try to be loving on your own, you're going to write that person a bill. This is what I was thinking about this week. Any person, anytime I'm good in any way, shape, or form, anytime I'm loving in the slightest way, there's a bill that gets written. I have like this incredible line item going in my head towards my kids, towards my wife, towards my friends, towards my work. Every time I feel like I'm, I'm like a matcher, you know, they have the givers, they have takers, and they have matchers. I'm a matcher. And I'm just always matching it's like, oh, they were nice to me? I got to be nice back. I don't always know it consciously, but somehow the clock is running. I'm like the New York City taxi cab that never stops the clock. 
It's just always running. You can small talk with me, but the clock's running. You're going to owe me some minutes. <laughs> That's how limited I am. And so akin to that is asking God, God, would you be love in me? So that it's your love going out and not my love. Because if I try to love, I'm going to write a bill. I'm going to bill them. And it's going to get weird. We're going to be writing thank you notes to each other forever. <laughs> That's no way to live, folks. Application number two is to stay. Um, this one is a new lesson for me. You know, this is the longest I've ever been at a place. I'm on year six now. Year five is behind me. And I can't believe that. I never thought I'd ever get here. The longest I've ever been at a place is four years. And so I celebrate my record setting every day, my PR. <laughs> uh, but here's what I'm learning now. There have been relationships in this church with, between me and people where it got weird. It got awkward. It got tense. And then in the past, when I was at churches shorter, like it usually, you know, my exiting behavior was started around here too. I feel this like I have to take on the fixing of that relationship. I do it with my own love, with my own wisdom and my own timing, my own effort. I try to fix it. It never quite works. It always stays unresolved. You know, we're not laughing about it. It's not, it stays a thing. But one of the things I'm just beginning to get a taste of is if I stay in the relationship long enough, if I allow it to run its course and I'm available and they're available and we belong together as part of a church body, God has a sense of timing and process also. His love begins to enter the scene and his love begins to work things out in a way that neither of us could ever have. And so this is a huge lesson for me. And the lesson is this. Peter, it's the human tendency to break love. But God doesn't break the relationship. He breaks his own body so that the relationship can continue. When we broke the relationship with God, with our rebellion and sin, with our independence, without, with our own self-authorship of our own life, God did everything he had to do to bridge that gap again. He reached out to us and he's reconciling the world back to himself because God doesn't believe in breaking relationships. That's not what love does. The first trait and I think this is the defining trait about love, is what? Love is patient. That's the first and primary descriptor. God is willing to stay in the relationship with me until I am fully reconciled to him. And his love can endure. His love can love me to the end. My love fails. My love falls short. My love generates bills. But he is able to love to the end. So the second application is stay in relationships and trust that no matter how painful it is, no matter how awkward it is, as you ask of God, God will show up in that relationship. He will help you to have a new perspective. He will help you to humble yourself. He will help you to say, I'm sorry, and fix things. Let me close. Uh, my sister, my older sister, um, she lives in New York, and um, she was in a really big car accident. Her car was totaled. She was T-boned by a, a driver running a red light when she was making a left turn on a green arrow. And uh, I wanted to, I thought about this book because I gave her this book. This is my favorite Henry Nouwen book, Out of Solitude. It's called, I gave it to her uh, maybe, maybe 15, maybe 20 years ago. Actually, it was more like, it was 97 I gave her this book. So it's, it was a long time ago. And uh, I just I was thinking about my sister this week, praying for her. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Uh, we have talked about this book a lot, and I thought it was very appropriate to end with this quote as our conclusion. This is a quote. 
Go to your private room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in that secret place. A life without a lonely place, that is, a life without a quiet center, easily becomes destructive. When we cling to the results of our actions as our only way of self-identification, then we become possessive and defensive and tend to look at our fellow human beings as, uh, as human beings more as enemies to be kept at a distance than as friends with whom we can share the gifts of life. In solitude, we can slowly unmask the illusion of our possessiveness and discover in the center of our own self that we are not what we conquer, but what, we, what is given to us. In solitude, we can listen to the voice of the one who spoke to us before we could speak a word, who healed us before we could make any gesture to help, who set us free long before we could free others, and who loved us long before we could give love to anyone. It is in this solitude that we discover that being is more important than having and that we are worth more than the result of our efforts. In solitude, we discover that our life is not a possession to be defended, but a gift to be shared. It's there where we recognize that the healing words we speak are not just our own, but are given to us. That the love we can express is part of a greater love. And that the new life we bring forth is not a property to cling to, but a gift to be received. Would you pray with me? Father, in many ways, this uh, idea of love coming from you, it's really simple. You are love and we are not. And we need to be loved if we're going to be conduits of your love. Seems so simple. And yet it's so hard for us. We keep wanting to be the authors of our own goodness. And that just cannot be. So God, I pray for each person in this room. I pray for every relationship. I pray for us as a body. Help us to be recipients of your deep, unchanging, powerful, faithful, strong, and resilient, perfect and complete love. Overwhelm us with it. And allow us to be conduits of it as you become love in us, for us, and through us. May the world know that you are alive and well by your love shining through us. Be our help in Jesus' name. Amen.